you're in the foyer, go ahead and make your way on in, and uh, we'll get started. I was mentioning earlier, happy Pentecost Day. Uh, so my upbringing, remember, I grew up in far more Pentecostal, charismatic churches. So this is kind of a big thing for us. We like to highlight Pentecost Day. And if you know what that is, it's just honestly uh, just remembering when um, disciples gathered together and Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. Um, and so kind of like Christmas, Easter, um, people like to just kind of focus on that. Um, and I think in some ways it's important. You know, I grew up, you can definitely abuse the, the role of the Holy Spirit, um, but also sometimes we can negate and forget who he is. Um, and so I think there's a healthy balance. And the truth is that if you're here today, if you sung and worshiped Christ, um, you couldn't do that without the Holy Spirit. It takes the renewal of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to sing praises unto God. And to be honest, we're going to hear the word unfolded, and we can't apply that without the Holy Spirit. Um, and so he is incredibly vital to us, but once again, he's always behind the scenes. Um, he doesn't want to draw attention to himself, but he wants to lift, as the word says, he wants to lift Christ up. And that's our goal today in unpacking Mark 6 a little bit, and I'm so glad you guys are here. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll start. Father God, we, we thank you. I mean, that just in of itself seems so small of a word to say, but we thank you, we praise you, um, that we get to gather as your people by your spirit, because of your son, Jesus, we get to, to praise you and to worship you. And we sang songs lifting up your name. We sang songs that directed our thoughts and our affections towards you. And now we continue into opening your word and, and asking that it would shape us, that it would change us, that it would challenge us. Your word is truth, it is power. And so we ask that, God, it would be a clarion call to us today, Lord, that it would accomplish what it has been set out to do. And I pray that we wouldn't detract from it in any way. I pray that we wouldn't um, minimize it, that because it says something that maybe rubs us the wrong way or we just really don't particularly like to hear, I pray that, Father God, that your spirit would work in our heart to soften it our hearts will not be hard, that our minds will not be closed, but your truth would be powerful and heard today, Lord. And so in all of this, we ask Jesus, amen and amen. So good to have you guys here. So let's jump in. If we want to stand, we're going to read Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd." And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And he said to him, 
Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. You guys can be seated. So we've kind of gotten back into Mark after a little break. And you know me. You've heard me preach a few times. I like setting. I like backdrops. I like a little premise going. So just to remind ourselves what's happening. And if you haven't heard the sermon from last Sunday from Nate, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it because he did a really good job of walking through that whole scenario with John. Um, and it's an important scenario to what we're going to talk about today. So the setting is this. Remember, the disciples are returning from their first missionary trip authorized by Jesus. Okay, so if you look back at chapter 6 and verse 7, we see that Jesus sends out the 12. Okay? So if we can also remember this, that a much of Mark is about the authority of Jesus. See, whether it be over uh, the ability to forgive sins, or whether it be over the demons, or the Sabbath, right, or even creation, Mark makes it a point to show that his authority because he is the Son of God. And this leads to the question asked by many, who is this? So they are no doubt emotionally, physically, and mentally tired. They have been observing Jesus preach the kingdom message and validating that with miraculous signs, right? But this has been the first instance where they are doing it themselves. They've gone out under the authority, and he says, now you do what you see me doing. See, during this time, Jesus begins to shift uh, from a large-scale ministry among the crowds to a more intentional and focused ministry amongst training and equipping his disciples. But many commentators believe that this particular moment, this scenario, this miracle is of great importance. In fact, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that has recorded all four Gospels. That's big. We even find later that Mark looks back on it during another miracle with the disciples and mentions their total lack of understanding and the meaning of the loaves. For Jesus, this miracle has great importance. So my question when I was studying this is, why was the sending of the 12 important to the feeding of, a five, of the 5,000? Why does, why does it get connected? Why is it where it is? And I truthfully believe that this miracle wasn't for the people. I believe it was honestly for the disciples. Okay, so when we look at how did Jesus actually send out the 12, this is where I want to get a little bit of our context. So notice that Jesus sends them out, okay, and he allows them to take nothing other than the essentials. And even those essentials are very bare minimum. See, this isn't a scenario as some people like to, to make where they say, well, this is just Jesus saying that we as Christians need to live in an aesthetic life. We need to live in poverty. This isn't, that's not what's happening here. 
Okay, because we'll actually find out that later when he sends the disciples out again, he tells them to bring things with them. So Jesus is saying live in poverty. What he's doing is he's saying this is an urgent time. The message is urgent. So don't worry about all the things that can weigh you down. Just go out and preach the gospel. So even more so, it is about Jesus, or it's about the disciples having understanding of Jesus as provider. And I believe that that is the focus of what Jesus is accomplishing here during this time. I believe he is identifying himself as the same Jehovah Jireh that met the needs of Abraham even on the Mount of Isaac. Let me say it again. I believe that in this moment, in this scenario, in this season of miracles, Jesus is saying, I'm the same Jehovah Jireh that you've known in the Old Testament with Abraham on the mount. And this is what I hope to unpack as we move through this story. It's interesting because if you actually look back on the things that Jesus says, don't take with you, right? So he says, don't take two cloaks. Don't take food or bread. And then he says, don't take a bag. And in the Greek, that, that bag is actually, um, it's kind of an essentials bag. You'd wear it on your hip and you would often keep your food in it. Okay, so in some, in some circles, they would say, well, well, that kind of seems redundant. Why would you say don't take bread and then also don't take a bag of bread? Well, the thing is this, is that that bag can actually also be referred to as a beggar's bag. And so you would, you would take it and you would actually go around and you, you would beg for supplies. And so I think in some ways, once again, Jesus is setting them up and he's saying, I'm going to be your provision. So don't take the physical bread, but also don't just get rid of the ability to beg for it. You have to trust me on this. He's, in a sense, disarming them. And so the story picks up after the death of John the Baptist. Matthew actually connects the death of John with the feeding of the 5,000 by acknowledging Jesus' response to the loss of his friend. Matthew connects the two stories together. And as the disciples are returning to Jesus from their trip, as the great provider, he offers his first provision. And that is rest. So if you've ever been on any sort of missions trip, you'll understand the type of highs and lows that comes with them. Anybody ever been on a missions trip? Right? It can be exciting. And it can also be awe-inducing, right? You're out of your comfort zone. Sometimes you're seeing part of the world that you've never been part of, right? And it's, it's amazing to be bigger, be, to be part of something bigger than yourself as you serve in what God is doing, Right? But it can also be difficult and trying because sometimes the conditions aren't what you're used to, right? Maybe the people that you're serving with aren't the normal people that you hang out with. Maybe the tasks that you're doing on the trip aren't in your wheelhouse. They're not according to your skills. So it can be terrifying at times and hard and challenging. And sometimes, this is funny because when I was a youth, this is what we feared, Sometimes nothing compared to the dread of knowing that when you got back, one or more of you on the team would have to give an account to the church. And let's be honest, getting a team to talk about things is really hard. Or maybe you're a parent and you have planned your vacation, right? And so you, 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 
you do everything that you need to get done, right? You, you plan the destination, you, you do the travel, right? You get all the clothes together, you, get, you, you figure out the agenda, right? You hope that everybody's excited, right? And you get there. And for the first few days, it's fun, right? You're not dealing with work. You're not dealing with the home issues. But then something happens at some point, especially when you have young kids. You leave the trip saying, man, I really need a vacation from my vacation, right? You leave the vacation feeling more exhausted than when you went into it. So what should have been restful is actually tiresome. So Jesus, he knows this, right? Because he's, he's all-knowing, right? And so and Jesus is calling his disciples back to him to rest. He is addressing their humanity. He's addressing their limitations. He is mindful and sympathetic to their inability to always be full of energy and strength. Notice that not much is said about what they were doing. Mark focuses more on the fact that they needed to reconnect, right? So once again, we look back on um, Jesus sending them out with authority, and, and that, that, that talk of authority is really as a representative. So the message that they are proclaiming is powerful because of who is sending him. So the same thing is, is when you had a message from a king, is, is the, the, the person carrying the message wasn't really valuable in themselves, It was the message they were carrying because of who it was coming from. So they're sent out with a message because of the authority of Jesus. And so they come back. And part of that authority is that they had a report to him. Right? And so I'm sure in some ways they're excited. They're probably also tired mentally, emotionally, physically. You know, they don't have cars. They don't have Uber. They don't have trains. You know, it took a lot to go around that area. And so he is mindful of the frailty. See, something that becomes quite evident, ev- uh, evident quickly as a full-time ministry is, is that it can often become very easy to be absorbed in the ministry, to feel the weight of all the needs of the community and the church and the world. But not just for full-time ministers. How about all of life? Each one of you can easily become overwhelmed with the issues of life, can you not? And it can be tiresome and grueling mentally and physically, right? Some people can stay up late at night with upset stomachs because they worry about what's coming tomorrow. And so successes, however big or small, are important. See, they can give us energy, and they can give us hope, and they can give us even joy. But success should never be our strength. Success should never be our strength. We are always to turn to Jesus. See, success can be exciting, but it should never be life-giving. Only Jesus can do that. And I fear that in the community of churches today that we are creating people that are only relying on the high of ministry or the experience of a worship service. And they're still walking away saying, why do I feel empty? Why do I feel tired? The call to serve in the ministry of the Lord is never 
at the cost of our savoring the Lord. Let me say that again. The, jo- the call to serve in the ministry, and each one of you are called to serve in the ministry. Let me remind you that. The call to serve in the ministry of the Lord is never at the cost of our savoring the Lord. And Jesus knew that. He knew that he was their root. And so the, the Greek, it says that he listened intently until they were done giving him a report. So he heard about their stories. And he says, thank you. Now come, let us go rest. That word rest in Greek, uh, it's, uh, it's a good one. It, it means to repose, to refresh, or to cause, or permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect strength. So we're going we're gonna to stop you, what you're doing right now. Just stop. But the implication isn't to cease from all work and then receive rest. A lot like we think of retirement, right? So if we put in the hours and the years and the time, and then when I hit 65, then I'll be done, and I can just kind of like live life smoothly after that, right? No, that's, that's not how this is talking about. See, the idea is this, that the focus is on being refreshed, not the ceasing. And so, so Jesus knows, like, work is always at hand, right? Even he says, he says, my father rested, right? He created, he rested, but he's always at work, and I too am about my father's business. So even in the midst of work, Jesus finds time to rest. So it's not about the stopping of labor, it's about finding the refreshment. And so why is this important? Because one, Jesus knew what they had just gone through. And two, because he knows what they're about to go through. Mark even says that it was so busy that they didn't even have time to eat. How many moms can attest to that, right? Sometimes I come home and, you know, maybe I had a good lunch. Maybe I met with somebody and I'm feeling refreshed and Michelle has literally been snacking on a piece of toast all day because she's just been attending to the kids. The term rest is very intimately tied to God. See, it's obviously a physical rest here, right? And definitely it is a mental rest, but most of all, it is a spiritual rest. It is the ceasing of striving to accomplish anything spiritually worthwhile that we cannot accomplish on our own. It is a removing of the anxiety and the fear that is associated with our guilt and our sin and our separation of God. It is also a rest that leads to freedom. See, we in Christ, we are no longer bound, but free. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. That's how we were. But in Christ, we are free. And so the writer in Hebrews continues to further explain the deep need to enter God's rest by giving the warning to avoid disbelief. See, the reconnecting of the disciples to Jesus was tantamount to any other action or experience that they had partook in. Follow me with this on this for just a minute. See, I can't help but mourn over marriages that start off well. Right, that, that young love, that excitement, that joy, that, that looking to the future, hopes and dreams. But then as the family begins to grow, 
right? Needs arise, right? Kids come, work, and things happen, right? And so, so much time and energy is given, and even money, right, is given to raising the children. You're racing them around, right, to sporting events. You're, you're creating opportunities socially for them to engage and to learn, right? And, and you're, you're, you're partaking in school functions, but at some point, the connection between husband and wife slowly begins to fade because the focus is on the kids. And at some point when the kids are gone, all that remains is a man, a woman, and a house full of things that we too often hear the statement, I just fell out of love with you. Or even I don't know who you are anymore. And so they resolve that the only solution is to dissolve what is remaining in part ways. See, what happens in the absence of intimacy, doubt begins to rise. Questions begin to be asked, hearts begin to harden, and the relationship dies. Jesus knows this. And so without connecting with Jesus, the disciples could have easily begun to wonder about their need of him. They could have gotten in such a rhythm and such a practice of what they were doing, they could have begun to say, you know what, I don't know if I really need Jesus. Like, I'm doing this. And that's, that's, as a minister, that can, that can happen a lot of times. We can get into the rhythm of things and begin to go in our own strength and begin to realize, I've been doing this all without Jesus. Maybe they could have thought back on John's death and said, is this really worth it? The truth is, is that we are more susceptible to lies and doubt the more tired we become. But Jesus calls them back to himself. So there's a saying that says absence makes their heart grow fonder, but I think that if it is a true relationship, presence makes the heart grow stronger. There comes a point where you want to continuously be with that person. And your heart grows and grows in love and feelings and inferno, but it only comes when you're actually in community with each other, when you're in relationship with each other. And Jesus knows that. And so he provides them rest. Now, at this point in the story, remember, so he calls them, he gets them into a boat, they go to the other side, right? And then it says this. It says that the crowd saw him and recognized him, and they ran after him. Now, at this point, it is hard for Jesus to hide. Okay, we're seeing this. He's doing wonderful things in the area of Galilee, right? The Gospels make it a point to remind us that Jesus made a habit to find times right, to retreat, to reconnect with the Father or his disciples. And quite often, it's because of the crowds. It is no different here in Mark. So Jesus has become popular, and he's become well-known among the people. And so they see him, and they pursue after him. And I can only imagine what the disciples are thinking at this moment. What started as a retreat to the other side for rest is now consolidated to finding rest on a short boat ride. And if you're a disciple and you're nearing the shore and you're seeing the crowd, couldn't you just um, in a sense understand how their hearts could drop? I mean, we just went out, we just did this thing and we're supposed to get away and then, ma'am, there they are again. I love the little jokes about, you know, like, like having kids, sometimes the only time you can find rest is in the restroom. You know, 
There's times where like all of a sudden a little note gets shoved under the door or a little toy car. And even then you're like, I just, I just want just a few minutes, right? I can understand how the disciples could have felt. But Jesus is different. Think about this. The feelings of just losing his friend, of being pursued because you're a miracle worker. So as they reached the shores, it says that Jesus had compassion on them. And Luke, it even states that Jesus welcomed them. And in the Greek, it's welcoming with gladness. I don't know about you, but if I was stressed and tired and looking for a break and somebody shows up there, I don't know if I'd be welcoming with gladness. But Jesus does. Let me take a moment here and just pause. See, people can be fixated on parts of God in Scripture. And those parts can make him seem one-dimensional. They can make him seem confused and delusional. They can make him seem even flat-out evil. They can be repulsed by his wrath, and they can call his justice wrong. But why is Jesus important? Now, for us, obviously, it's because we know he is our Savior. But it's also because he is God incarnate. See, I remember hearing something while in college that has always stuck with me. So Marshall McLuhan was a philosopher and a professor way back when, and he focused on media theory, so the study of media and people. So he is known for coining the phrase, the medium is the message. His point was that the form of media was often more important or even overlooked than the actual message itself. The example I remember was that if I had a bomb and I handed it to you, okay, but on that bomb, I had painted a really nice smiley face, right? And then I even said, have a nice day, right? So it's you're going to be terrified, right? There's no question about it. Because the thing is, is no matter how hard I tried to make that message palatable, right? As, no matter how hard I try to make it soft and fuzzy, you still understood the context of the message because of what? The medium. It was a bomb. And so here's the thing. Messages are great. But sometimes the medium, the medium by which the message is on is more important. So there have been many messages spoken throughout history. Right? Many messages by various religions and by people, but there's only one God that has made himself known amongst us. Hebrews 2.14, we know this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, right? In, in uh, 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ has made God known. And so, People need to understand that they are welcomed by God. That he isn't angry 
despite our total depravity, God actually has a heart of general gladness towards us. People need to hear that. People need to know that. He desires for us to come so much that he actually came to us. But get that into your spirit. He welcomes us. The word compassion in Greek, I love this. It's like one of my favorite words is splunknon. Fun one, splunknon. And it actually refers to the upper intestines or the bowels, okay? And so in ancient, in ancient culture, in ancient Greek, it is where the ancients viewed the seat of emotion. So today we would actually say gut-wrenching, right? It's, it's like it's gut we feel it right here. And it actually, it's a, it's a really interesting study to, to learn the, the, the connection between your gut and your mental health. It's huge. The verb, though, splunk nizomai, that is used of Jesus in this verse. Here's the interesting thing. The verb is only used of Jesus in the New Testament or any character in a parable that is representing Jesus. And so you say, well, why is that verb important? It's because of this. So remember, splunknon refers to the emotions, the feelings, okay? But the verb splunknizomai, it means this. It means moved by one's bowels, moved by one's emotions. And the, and the difference is this, is that Jesus didn't just have feelings about the people. It doesn't say that he just had compassion and that was it. Right? He looked at them and he said, oh, I really pity them. Hey, guys, let's keep going. The difference is this, is that he felt feelings, and those feelings required resolve through action. It says that because they were sheep without a shepherd, he began to teach them. And this is the second thing that he provides, is Jehovah Jireh, and that is truth. So just put a pin in this right quick. This is, this is picture yourself. You're, you're a disciple. You're excited. You're tired, right? You're going away on a trip with Jesus to reconnect. The crowds show up. Jesus feels compassion, and he begins to teach them. And I almost like, you know, a disciple is like, really? Like this is supposed to be our time. But here's the thing, is that for Jesus, the truth was paramount. Teaching the people was paramount. So that idea of, of sheep without a shepherd, it's, it's really an idea of, like, of leadership. They lacked leadership. They lacked somebody moving them along. And so his role as the great shepherd is to guide them. And he does that by giving them truth. See, as people of God, our emotions matter, but they are not the end all. If we are to truly be like Jesus, we have to serve in our compassion as he did. And as much as the disciples needed physical rest, and eventually we will come to see that they needed actual food nourishment, right? Jesus was most, most focused on the proclamation of truth. Look at Luke 4.42. It says this. So Jesus is talking to the people. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's what is on the mind of Christ right now, is speaking the kingdom truth. 
You know, him calling him shepherd is really directly from the Old Testament. So shepherding is an easily understood occupation in this town right now, right? But we see this specifically in Numbers 17, or I'm sorry, Numbers 27, 17. Numbers 27, 17. So this is a story where God is talking to Moses, right? So Moses has sinned. God says, because of that, because you, you profane my name, because you, you didn't respect me amongst the people, you're not going to enter the promised land. And so God is showing Moses, he's like, this is the promised land. This is where your people are going to go. And Moses asked him, he says, he says, please, can you at least give them somebody to lead them in and out so that they are not sheep without a shepherd? This is where it's coming from. And so God raises up a leader. He raises up Joshua, who actually is a foreshadow or a type of Jesus. And so the general idea that we have as people, if you do any sort of Google search, is this, is that sheep lack some intelligence that other animals have. I didn't say it. Shepherds say it. They are social, and they are often uh, hold to a herd mentality. I was reading some reports, and I came across this, uh, this interesting report from 2005. It was a, a story. There was 1,500 Turkish sheep. So this town kind of put their sheep together, and they kind of co-shepherded, right? So in 2005, a single sheep, for some reason, nobody knows why, none of the shepherds, right? A single sheep leapt over the cliff. 1,500 sheep followed. 400 of them died. And so this day, they're like, we don't know what happened. We don't, we don't know why they did it. Something happened in that sheep, and it went, and all the others, for some reason, followed. You know, I don't really, I don't have to try too hard to connect the dots between us and sheep. We're like that. Sometimes we just don't think. We just follow. We just do. We need guidance. And Jesus knows that. And so he is teaching and he's healing the people and the disciples and they come to him and remember it says that it's getting late, right? It's getting late. They've been here a long time and, and actually the Greek, it's, it's literally the sun is beginning to set. Like it's been all day. They've been with him for a majority of the time and, and I'm sure, like if anybody went to the air show yesterday, at some point you're tired and you're exhausted, you become irritable, right? And so they come to him and, and, and the disciples sought to solve the issue by sending the problem away. That's how they, that they wanted to deal with it that way. They said, hey, can we just send them away? Let them take care of their own needs. Let them buy their own food. But Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus calls the disciples to serve from a place of faith, starting with what they already have. Don't miss that point. He calls them to serve from a place of faith, starting with what they already have. See, there's a Christian saying uh, that, that God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. And I think on the surface, it's a pretty good statement, and for the most part, it's pretty true. But as I started studying this text, I started thinking about this, and and yes, I fully agree that, that within our own abilities to making a lasting impact, we need God. Absolutely. 
But I started thinking about uh, the way that God has used people throughout history. And I started thinking about this idea of common grace and special grace. And so if you don't know what those means, common grace is this. Common grace is, is, is the grace that God gives to anyone, regardless of they're saved or not. So if you have a doctor who isn't a Christian, who isn't saved, but the ability that he has as a doctor to do surgery and to comprehend them, that's God's grace, right? We, we look at, we look at uh, musicians and actors and we say, wow, they're amazing. The skills that they have, the talents they have, that is phenomenal. And we always say, man, if they were just a Christian, right? Think of how much more, yeah, that's cool. But don't miss the fact that that is the grace of God. It is a gifting from God. And we like to think of grace as this idea of a blessing, right? So I'm, I'm receiving something, right? This grace is given to me, right? But grace is also withholding. Stop and think about this. We, if we, if we were to take at face value the truth of what Scripture says about who we are in our depravity, okay? It is the grace of God that doesn't allow us to be even more evil than we are. If you look at the world right now and you say it is horrible, the killings, the murders, the violence, the, 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 the immorality, right? If, but have you ever thought that it could be the grace of God that is allowing it to be even worse than it is? So there's common grace. And then when we talk about special grace, that is the special grace of salvation. Okay, it's unique. And so he... I started thinking about this idea of, of, of giftings and grace, and, and I started thinking about Moses had a staff, a simple staff, right? David had a sling. Paul had academic training, and the body of Christ has tons of gifts. I believe that there are times when God calls us to use what we already have, and then he multiplies it. And so the reason that this is important to me is because I think at least in the American church, we can become so guilty of being inactive in the kingdom of God because we only see what we lack. We fall trapped to the idea that we have the greener grass of the bigger church with the bigger budget, or we had that other leader who is charismatic, right? If we had more and more and different things, and there's even times, I think I've heard in my life that if, People said, if we had a different problem, like in Mayberry, you're just in a different town. You know, when I started my ministry out of college, my first full-time job in a church, right, you go through four years of education, you learn about ministry, you learn about the things you're going to come in contact with, right? So you get prepared for it. But nobody prepared me for what I was going to experience in my first year. I'm not the most, I'm growing, but I'm not the most organized person, and I definitely wasn't back then. But the grace of God led me to do something unique to who I was. I decided that in my youth ministry to collect all insurance information and put it into a, a packet, like everything. Okay, you know, whatever. And so we are taking our junior high kids to winter camp. Great weekend. Connecting with the kids. It was fun. We were coming back, and... I'm driving ahead of the 15-passenger van. And afternoon, had a fun full week, and my adult volunteer falls asleep at the wheel, driving the 15-passenger van, going over 70 miles an hour. 
and I'm watching. Sorry, this, every time, anyway, this just gets me. I'm watching in my rear mirror this van careening across the highway. And then I, it, and I lose it. It's gone in the, in the weeds. And I have my other volunteer with me, and he has no idea what's going on. I pull that car to a screeching hold on the highway, and I'm out sprinting barefoot down the highway because I don't know what I'm going to see. And he's still sitting in the car like, what's going on? And I get to the vehicle, and two kids were ejected. My wife was in the car. We were supposed to bring Addison, but we decided last minute not to. They don't prepare you for that. At some point, I could have become so angry with God, I said, why this? Why could it have been some other problem? I'm not equipped for this. But one of the most, for me, encouraging things out of the entire scenario, and I know it sounds funny, but remember, I'm not the most organized person. Medics show up, police show up, other side of the highway stops. In fact, another accident happened because of it. So, obviously, like, you're going through and they're, they're trying to get information. You're like, everything, everything that comes with a medical scenario. And I walk over to the head medic and I hand him this envelope. And he's like, what's this? And I said, I think it's everything you're going to need. And he starts looking through. And he goes, I've never in my life ever seen something so helpful. He goes, you don't understand how much this has made my job. I know it sounds funny, but how much this has made it my job easier. And that, to me, is like a profound grace of God. That was beyond me. And, you know, we can't say, why, why can't we have a different neighborhood? Why can't we have a different problem? Why can't we have different scenarios? But the, the truth of the matter is, is God calls you where you are. And in this story, he says, what do you have? Not what do you need, but you know what? That's where the disciples' minds went, wasn't it? They realized the massive amount of people, right? The cost to feed them, even the logistics of feeding them. And they said, we can't do this. That would be almost, so a 200 nari is almost eight months worth of pay. So they think, even when we have the time, they're like, the money, it's just, we couldn't do this, Jesus. But Jesus puts the weight back on them. He says in the emphatic, you feed them. And John makes note. I love this. John, John points, he says, Jesus knew what he was doing because he was already knew what he was going to do, right? He puts it on them. He says, you do this. But the goal wasn't that the disciples supply the need. The goal was that they would respond in faith by seeing Jesus for who he is, Jehovah Jireh. So at this point, all the examples of God feeding his people that they had heard from the Torah should have come flooding back to memory. They should have begun to connect God's provision of manna in the wilderness or the widow of Zarephath or how Deuteronomy 10 spoke of God loving the sojourner and giving him food and clothing. Or in Job 36, when it says that God said, for by these he judges people, he gives food in abundance. And upon inspection, it becomes incredibly clear that God of Scripture is a God that provides and feeds his people. And if Jesus is truly God, then why would he be any different? And so Jesus tells them to take stock of what they already had. 
After going out, they return with five loaves and two fish. And let's be honest, it's not five loaves and fish. It's more like five pitas and sardines. We, we miss that because we're not from that culture, but this is a very small meal from a child in a fishing town that probably wasn't even going to satisfy him that much. And, and at this point, the disciples are, seriously, God, really, Jesus? Okay. And so as a Jewish father at this time, because remember, this is right before Passover. So as a Jewish father would stand up He would take it and he would give a blessing. Jesus stands there. He takes the bread and he takes the fish and he licks it to heaven and he blesses. And we aren't told how the actual miracle take place. Man, I want to ask Jesus this. We're not, you know, he could have had it fall from heaven, right, like manna in the wilderness. He He could have done any other way, but he does a very unique thing and a very common thing. Don't miss this, church. He has the disciples hand it out. And they hand it out again and again and again to over 5,000 men, as Mark points out. But a lot of commentators guesstimate over 20,000 plus people. So Jesus puts them in order. He says, you feed them. And they go and they put it before them, one after another. And the word it says, it says that they ate till they were satisfied. And that Greek is, is, is actually the idea of leading an animal to a trough and letting it eat till it can eat no more. And so it literally says that Jesus fed them till they were satisfied. And then on top of that, there's remaining food. This is a big miracle. And people like to point out, well, what does the 12 baskets mean? Is that the 12 tribes of Israel? Is that for the 12 disciples? Yeah, it could be. But I think it's something different. So remember at the beginning of Mark, I would mentioned that Mark connects this miracle in a later one. So the, 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 the story after this is Jesus walking on the water, right? And uh, the, the disciples are rowing tirelessly again. They're tired, right? And he, he's walking out to them. And they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. And he calls out to them, and he gets in the boat, and then the storm stops. The waves calm. And the disciples are amazed at this. And the interesting is this, is that Mark doesn't draw out something about the storm. He does this. He says says that they miss the point of the loaves. Now, why is that important? It's because this, Mark is really drawing attention. He says they shouldn't have been surprised at the storm being calmed. Because if they truly understand who Jesus is, right, God, sovereign over all, they should have looked at the miracle of the loaves and recognized he is provider. And for him to calm a storm should have been nothing else, right? It's just who he is. But they totally miss the fact that he is sovereign over all. And they're amazed at waves being still. So there's this thing called the showbread. And I'm wrapping up here. We go back to Old Testament time. There's this thing called the showbread in the temple. And there was restrictions, or not restrictions, but there was instructions on how to do this. And it was something the Israelites had to keep on a table in the temple. 
It's also called the bread of presence, and it symbolizes the presence of God, and it was to be a reminder that man is dependent on more than just the physical and that he is our provision. So think about this. So the instructions were this. They were to take 12 loaves, stack them two piles, six high. And they came in, they saw that, and they were to be reminded that God is their provision, that he is their source of life. What does Jesus say a little bit later, right? The crowds come after them. He says, you're not looking for me because I did miraculous things. You're looking for me because I filled your stomachs with food. This is such an important thing because because the people, when they saw that, it actually says that they, they, they looked to make him king. In their eyes, this was huge. And he says, you only cared because I filled your stomach. You're only looking for a government that gives you what you want. But then he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the show bread. What you've heard in the Old Testament, that's me. I'm no different. Psalm 78 is a, is a psalm of Asaph. And it's, it's, a, it's a great psalm. I love it. He's going back and he's recounting. He's saying, let's tell the generations of what God has done for us. Let's remind them. In verse 19, it says this. It says, they spoke against God. This is him reminding of what the Israel, Israelites in, in the wilderness said. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And I believe that Jesus is answering that question once again. And I believe that is why he later dresses their lack of understanding beyond the physical, that he is the bread of life. This is the point, guys. He says, I'm sovereign. You want to know who I am? I'm God. And you know what? It's not just about the physical things. Yeah, I can take care of those, and I do them really well. But you can trust me in your spirit and your soul because I am that which doesn't fade away. I don't spoil. You can't take it. I'm truth. I am your provider. And so I don't know what you guys are dealing with today in your lives. But know this, he's your provider. He's the same provider with Abraham. The same provider with Israel when they disobeyed him. He's the same provider at this miracle and he's the same provider for you right now. Yeah, he cares about your physical things. Absolutely. He cares about your heart, your emotions, your mind. He wants to give you rest. He wants to see you succeed. He wants to call you into what he is doing right now. And sometimes he's going to say, what do you have that I've already given you? What can you use, church? Look around you right now. What do we have at Highland Gospel Community right now? And are we trusting God enough to take that because he's sovereign and powerful and magnificent in all things? And can we believe that he will magnify it? And multiply it for his glory and for the sake of people around us. Can we do that? Let's bow our heads. Father God, we give you all praise and glory and honor. We love you, God. You are our Jehovah Jireh. And so we exalt you and we lift you up. 
and we honor you with our hearts and with our minds. I pray that, that what you are calling us to as a church, but also as people, individual people, I pray that, that we wouldn't be fearful of what is ahead of us, that we wouldn't say this is too big of a task. But we would say, God, you are sovereign over all things. You could make this happen. And so we step out in faith, We invite you, God, to do what you do best. We pray that the, that the gospel message that you proclaim, Jesus, would not fall short in this church. That it would emanate out from these walls because you have people living. As your word says, we are living stones. And that we would carry that message into the workplaces, that we would carry that message into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into grocery stores and malls and wherever it may be, that, Father the God, that the message would not be withheld from our lips. That it would shape us, that it would challenge us, that it would remind us, that it would encourage us, Lord. First of all, I pray that, Father God, that we as your people would not neglect our time with you. That we wouldn't think that this is the moment that we're in but Father God, we would actually steal those times away with you, God. However short they may be. That you would encourage us mentally and physically and emotionally. And that we could point others to you. And so your name we pray. Amen and amen.